0: Mary, that maybe we should wait for me to come up here until the song's kind of being done because that's why I get up here, it's kind of awkward. Like, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, what are you supposed to do? Let's just dance, you know. Dun, dun, dun. So, we'll, we'll, we'll get the timing down uh, later on. All right. I uh, hope you uh, I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor at Woodland's Church. Really good to see all of you, especially if you're visiting for the first time. Welcome. If you're visiting online for the first time, welcome. If you're a regular online, welcome. It's so good to have uh, you here and joining in this, this kingdom moment. I hope you all had a good week. And by that I mean, I hope you all had a good week practicing GAP. GAP. If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, you may not know what I'm talking about. But it's an acronym for three spiritual principles that, that are just foundational to the kingdom life and that I'm trying to get us all on board to be practicing regularly. The G stands for get all your life from Christ. And so every week have times where you spend time with Jesus and let him love on you and get filled with his love because that's the fuel of the kingdom. Uh, and then the A is uh, agree with God that every person you encounter and every person you even think about uh, has unsurpassable worth and was worth Jesus dying for. Collapse whatever judgments you have, whatever things you notice, and just agree with God about that. Um, it can be so liberating. I had a person testify uh, to me last week, and she said, you know, I practiced this this last week, where I just tried to remember to you know, be blessing people when I'm in the grocery store and walking on the street and driving the car. And, and she goes, it's so freeing. Because I, I never realized uh, what a burden it is to be the judge of the universe. You know, and, and, and to, to just give yourself permission to love people and not have to be policing anything else about them, she goes, I just find it to be so freeing. And then the P stands for pray for your enemies. This is a distinctive trademark of, the, of kingdom people. You know, enemies are the only group that Jesus specifically commands us to pray for. So I think we should be praying for our enemies, the ones who are the hardest to love. And so I encourage everyone to have a list of one to five people or so that, that, that you just have a hard time loving. Uh, Maybe they represent things that are loathsome to you, disgusting, and maybe they are, Uh, but the command to love them and pray for them and bless them uh, stays the same. So uh, this week, try to practice the gap more intensely than you did last week, and then the week after that, do do it more intensely still. Okay, I have a message I want to get you, but first I have to give a little preliminary word, and I will tell you up front that it's uh, kind of a heavy one. So... For the last 20 years or so, we've considered the Meeting House to be a sister church of ours, and we still do. Um, it's a church that's very dear to our hearts. We, we, we uh, share kingdom values, uh, kingdom convictions. And we have that in common. We collaborate on different things. Friendships have developed between our churches. and uh, it's Second to Woodland Hills is the church that's closest to my heart. And as I'm sure a lot of you know, because it's been in the news, the Meeting House in Toronto, Canada has been last several months been going through a lot. And more specifically, um, they're dealing with a number of allegations of clergy sexual abuse. Whenever there's clergy that have sexual relationships with those that they are entrusted with, it's called clergy sexual abuse. Uh, and I'm not going to have time to get into details on, on this. If you haven't heard about it, want to find out more about it, it's it's easy to do. If you just go to the meeting house website, uh, they give a full account of what, where things are at right now, and there are some things that are still in process and investigation and stuff, but they're committed to being totally open about this, and I, I applaud that. And I think that, that's the way we're going to deal with this. Um, I'll tell you that, that uh, personally, it's been devastating. I've, and I know some of you have had this sentiment. you said tears over this. It's just painful on so many different levels. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's an emotional punch in the gut. At the same time, on top of that, then several weeks ago, they came up with this report about the Southern Baptist Convention and how there has been uh, just clergy sexual abuse been covered up and swept under the rug for years and years and years. And then there's some Christian celebrities in the last decade or so that have been... Uh, discovered to have been involved in having sexual relationships with people that they were over, or colleagues, or whatever. And that's all on top of 30 years of revelation of the clergy sexual abuse that was going on in the Catholic Church. And it's just been devastating. It's it's devastating. I don't know know a different word for it. It's particularly devastating to the victims. I have spoken with survivors of clergy sexual abuse, and and, uh, man, it's, for some. It's absolutely crippling. Um, it, it, it can undermine their ability to trust any spiritual authority going on with their life. Christian leaders are supposed to care for their soul. They're supposed to uh, nurture your soul. They're supposed to be influencing people in a Christ-like direction. They're supposed to be modeling Christ-like love and tenderness and caring for people. And when that trust is violated and they abuse that authority and, and victimize people, it's just crippling. It's devastating. It's devastating. For many people, it screws up their picture of God. It screws up their picture of themselves. For some, they they have trouble thinking about sex as a godly thing anymore. These are all sorts of different wounds. Church is no longer a safe place for them, and that is so tragic because church church ought to be the safest place on the planet. And for some, they lose their faith altogether. Um, They don't survive that. It's so wrong and so damaging but as ugly and as painful, as messy, as grotesque as, as, as this is to deal with, it is good that it is finally coming out. Um, it, it, that's a, that, 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 it, it's long overdue. I spoke with Matt Miles uh, the other day. Um, he's the spiritual director of the Meeting House, and just to see how it's going and give him an update and stuff. And, 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 and he was saying that you know, this, this process is so messy, it is so painful, it's so bad, but they believe that God is in this. Uh, God is, he says, pulling back the covers to expose a cancer that's, that needs to be exposed. God's pulling back the covers to begin to teach the church how it is to enter into solidarity with victims and, and, and to work towards their healing and to work towards justice and restoration. It's painful, it's ugly, it's messy, but the meeting house is embraced this process because God is in this process. It's long overdue. And see, the, the church is supposed to be the community of truth. Uh, in, in the New Testament, the word truth is aletheia, which means uncovered. To be a community of truth is to be a community where things are uncovered, where you don't keep secrets that damage people. So it, it doesn't matter whether the truth is beautiful or the truth is ugly, the truth has got to be the truth and it's got to come out, amen? It's got to be spoken, it's got to be ad- addressed. And so the, the, the message, amen, if we don't stand for truth, then what do we stand for? So the message in all of this is that that, that, that the God who... He, Became a human being, then became an abused victim himself on the cross. It's a God who's always on the side of the victims, always on the side of the oppressed, always on the side of those who are being harmed. The message is that in God's church, any abuse of power, sexual or otherwise, any misusing of authority, uh, has, 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 has got to be there's no place for it here. It's got to be condemned and it's got to be protected against. And that applies as much to Woodland Hills Church as it does to the Meeting House, as it does to the Southern Baptist Convention or the Catholics or any group that's going to name the name of Christ. There's no place for this here. It's got to be protected against and the truth has got to come out. Got to deal with it. So I, I encourage us just to be praying for the victims their healing, for, for them to come forth and, 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 and to begin a process of healing. I, I encourage us to be praying for the clergy that abused them, that they'll confess and that they'll uh, accept the consequences of their, 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 their actions and, and, and then be transformed. Pray for the leaders of the meeting house as they are continuing to navigate the storm that they're in and pray for all of us who have been uh, hurt in different ways by what's transpired there and elsewhere. Uh, and there are many of them. Pray that the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, but also wherever this is happening, pray that they are open to this, to, to hear uh, the, the victims, and to be open to changing instead of resisting this to protect the status quo and to protect their image. Let the, let the ugliness come forth. Because a wound that is concealed is a wound that can never be healed. And so these things have to be addressed openly and honestly. And I applaud the meeting house for for really striving to do that. And so keep them in your prayer. Amen. Okay, there's my preliminary word. Now we're going back to our series, uh, which is called Cross-Examination. We're looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus commands us not to judge. And I'll get to that passage again in a little bit. but uh, just to kind of bring us all up to speed here, we've seen that love is our most important mandate. It's the all-important mandate. First Corinthians 13, it, it doesn't matter what else we do, however impressive it may be, however religious it may look, if it's not done out of love for the purpose of furthering love, it's altogether worthless. Love is the one thing that gives kingdom value to anything else that we do. So it's the all-important mandate. And we've seen that judgment is the all-important prohibition. Because judging others is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is, this, this is the antithesis of love. This is the foundational sin of the Bible. We had this discussion last week, which I, I thought was an incredible discussion. I just so appreciate Bill and Cedric and Sean. That team, you have got good chemistry. and A lot of good stuff came out of there, you know? It, it was a blast. And, and one of the things that we talked about, this is so important, is the, this distinction between judging on the one hand, judging people, which the Bible prohibits, and then discerning things or assessing things or evaluating things on the other. World of difference. We all need to assess things and evaluate things. Uh, that's, that's part of life. We, we, we have to answer these kind of questions all the time. Do I trust this person to babysit my kids? Is this an appropriate dress for this occasion? Do I want to buy this car or not? Is this person telling me the truth or not? Is that political opinion helpful or harmful? We, we make decisions like that all the time, and we must, and it's good and it's necessary. That's discerning. That's evaluating, assessing things. And we need that done for us because we all have blind spots. And so we emphasize the importance of having spiritual friendships where you invite people in your life just to, to, to speak into your life, um, to help you grow in your, in, in your walk with God. We all need that. Discernment's good. It always serves a practical purpose. There's always an, a, an action step to be taken. You're trying to resolve something to move forward. By contrast, Judgments, or what I'm calling judgments, and, and those kind of evaluations, you can call those judgments. I'm gonna, I, have to, I have to judge whether I want this person to babysit my child or not. So you can use the term for that, but we've got to be very very careful to distinguish that kind of legitimate judgment, discernment, assessment, distinguish that from looking down on people. Because whenever we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whenever we think that we can know, we can define good and evil for other people. We have this omniscience mechanism in our head once we eat of this tree. We think we know, like God knows. That's what the servant said. Oh, you'll be wise like God. And that's what it makes it feel like. We're as wise as God, so we think we can know people's hearts. It serves no other purpose, no practical purpose, other than to make you feel superior. Whether you gossip about people in your head, which is what we usually do. We have a little commentary going, oh, I can't believe that. Whether it's happening in your head or whether you're sharing it with other people gossiping with other people, which is another form of judgment. Um, what you're doing is you're feeding off the contrast. Individually as a group, we're not like that. You feed off the contrast. It makes you feel superior, can make them look inferior. And see, it's, it's, it's a foundational sin of the Bible because love, we've seen, is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. That's what God does for us on Calvary. Love is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself, whereas judgment's ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. It's the antithesis of love, and that's why it's the foundational sin of the Bible. Now, it may sound like, you know, here we're on our fifth, sixth week, we're talking about love and judgment. It may sound like, one person even said this, that we're making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah, judgment's wrong, but come on, foundational sin of the Bible, it's not not, not that bad. And I submit to you that if if that's your impression, like, gosh, he's making a big deal of judgment. Well, first of all, I'll remind you that the truth is called the knowledge of good and evil, which was applied to kings who got to define what is good and evil, and that's judgment. So it is foundational. But uh, if it seems like we're overblowing things, it may be because in Christian circles, judgment isn't one of the big sins that they go after. There's sins that they go after. uh, Never their own, but there's sins they go after. But judgment's never high on their list. In fact, in some circles, judgment... Judging is a good thing. It's what you're supposed to do. You're trained to notice other people's sins, certain kinds of sins, not your own, but you're trained to notice the specks out there while ignoring the log in your own eye. And so it may feel like we're making a mountain out of a mohill, but I submit to you that, that we're not. If you think about, that, think, think about this, every act of killing throughout history was birthed in a judgment. Every murder was birthed in a judgment. You have to look at someone as inferior to engage in violence against them. The judgment is you don't deserve to be treated as good as I get to be treated. You don't get to be treated like a normal human being. Maybe you don't even get to live. You don't even deserve to live. That's a judgment. If if, if human beings somehow lost our capacity to judge, if, if somehow tomorrow morning we wake up and we're exactly the same as we are now, but we just are unable to see other people as anything other than our equal. If that was the case... We'd still have differences of opinion, different preferences. We'd still, you know, uh, argue about things. But we would never have any violence. It would be impossible. Because to violate them would be violating yourself. They're, you're equal. Behind all violence throughout all human history are judgments. At the root of everything in human history that's antithetical to love is judgment. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, yes, this is a big deal. I sent to you, I'm not, and, and I, I just, almost say, I think it's amazing that this author of Genesis 2 and 3, one who wrote all about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all that, amazing that he got this insight 3,000 years ago. Chalk one up for biblical inspiration. I just think that, that it's profound. But I submit to you that I'm not making a mountain out of a mohill. I rather submit to you that a lot of other folks are making a mohill out of a mountain. Because the Mount Everest of sin, the foundational sin of the Bible, is Judging. And if it's a big deal in the Bible, it should be a big deal for us. Somebody say amen. 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 Okay, so what I want to do the rest of this message, next 25 minutes or so, is I want to go over five passages of Scripture that address judgment. I mentioned last week. And here's the irony is that, as I counted it, 27 different times in the New Testament where gossip and, 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 and verbal judgments are condemned. Rancor and... Slander and, and things of that sort. 27 times. And there's dozens that deal explicitly with judgments. But despite all of that, it's rated kind of low as a sin in Christian circles. It's just kind of bizarre. But I want to look at five of these. Um, because they, they reiterate the importance of not judging. And they also do teach different aspects about not not judging. The one I'm going to deal with first is the one that we've dealt with for the last five six weeks. It's the foundational passage of this uh, series. I told you up front, didn't I, that I am not going to be afraid of repeating myself because this stuff bears repeating. So it doesn't bother me that we've already read this verse five or six times before. We're going to read it again because there's still some jewels to be mined from this passage. You'll see. So here's what it says. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. The judgment you make is the judgment that's going to judge you. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. If you don't want to be judged on the judgment day or otherwise, this, then make it a practice not to judge. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? So Jesus says here that you'll be judged with your own judgment. What is up with that? Kind of an odd thing. Here's the deal. You find throughout the Bible that there's an organic relationship between sin and its punishment. Um. The punishment for sin is like it's, it's, it's baked into the sin itself. It's part of the moral order of the universe that God created. Uh, one author put it like this, that sin is pregnant with its own judgment. And so in a real sense, uh, sinners are punished by their own sin. In a real sense, they punish themselves. This is why God doesn't have to impose a sentence and carry out a sentence to bring judgment on folks. The most fundamental conception of of, of judgment in the Bible is that God simply lets us go. Romans 1 is a classic case of this where Paul says explicitly, the wrath of God has been revealed. And here's what it looks like. God, he says this three times in Romans 1, God gave them over to the reprobate mind. God gave them over to the wicked hearts. God, in his mercy, tries to hang on to people saying, don't go that, that, that direction. It's destructive. But if that just becomes enabling for the people to continue in their sin, God has no choice but to say, i got to let you go. This is tough love. And it grieves the heart of God. Beyond every judgment, there's, there's a weeping God, but God has to do it. I let, let you go. That's, and that sin b- brings forth its own punishment. It ricochets back on you. The Bible has another of these phrases where the sin that you've done will fall back on your head. You find that phrase all over the place. It will come back on you. It's a ricochet effect. Here's one good example of it. Uh, and, and Habakkuk. Habakkuk. How do you pronounce that? I've always said hey, Habakkuk, but some people say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It sounds like Habakkuk. So I, I, I don't want to Habakkuk, so I'll say Habakkuk. All right. In chapter 2, he says this, talking to the king of Assyria. For the violence done to Lebanon, he had raided Lebanon, the violence that you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Your own violence is going to overwhelm you. The destruction of the animals will terrify you. Because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who live in them. So note here, the violence ricochets back on him. The violence that you've caused is the violence that you're going to get. And the terror that you cause the animals is the terror that's going to, it's going to terrorize you. It comes back on you. The ricochet effect of sin. The punishment for sin is... Baked into the sin itself. It's a punishment of God because God created the universe this way with this moral order, but God doesn't have to impose a sentence. No, we carry it out on our own. So when God punishes, there's no need to put in into sentence. Um, I also want to note here this, that God, it was, the passage specifically mentions the violence that you did to animals, which is kind of interesting. Apparently God cares about how we treat animals. Um, yeah, he cares about how we treat humans, too. But here he specifically mentions animals. You find throughout the Bible that God has a special place in his heart for, for, for the animals in, on this planet. In, in, in the book of Jonah, there's a point where he, he explains to Jonah why he doesn't want to bring judgment on Assyria. And he says, because there's so many animals there. And, and, and they, get, they, they get caught up in the destruction process as well. God has a heart for animals. You can see this reflected in the fact that our first job description as human beings in Genesis 1 and 2 First job description is to take care of the earth and the animals. Have dominion. Have dominion over them the way God has dominion over you, which is not to dominate you. God doesn't dominate us. But his loving dominion over us. Have dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom in a way that reflects the heart of God, the character of God. Be good stewards is our first job description. The way the Bible portrays it is that we are God's enlisted landlords, and our job is to take care of his property and to take care of his pets. Our first job description. I still think it's one of the best benchmarks of how we're doing as a, as, as a race, as a species. How, how, how are we doing on this? Taking care of God's property and his animal kingdom. And the answer, I think, is obvious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to say we're not doing very well on this account. Not doing very well at all. In fact, I think we're striking out. Uh, two examples of this. Uh, we have... One of the major food sources for many, many people are, are animals that were slaughtered in industrial farms. And in most of these industrial farms, there's these animals, cows, chickens, pigs, uh, they, they spend their entire life unnatural. There's nothing natural about their existence. They're indoors, in crates, sometimes too crammed to even turn around. They live their entire existence. They're treated like plants, not sentient beings. Um... And it's, 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 just, it's just cruel. It's just cruel. Uh, another example. We've had climatologists, some of the most depressed people on the planet right now are climatologists, because for the last 40 years, they've been sounding this alarm. Hey, our earth is warming up. The greenhouse gases are trapping more heat, and, and, and this is going in the wrong direction. We've got to start doing stuff. For 40 years, they've been saying this. And for the last 10 years, they've been saying, you know what? We, were, we way underestimated the speed with which this is going to happen. Sometimes by up to three times, it's, it's going much faster than, than, than they thought. In fact, last year, we reached a temperature level that a lot of scientists 20 years ago thought we were warned that we would get to in 2050. We hit it last year. And so this is going on, and yet, despite these repeated warnings and dire urgings, nothing's being done to help mitigate against this, or, or very little being done to help mitigate against this, or to prepare for what happens because when when they're saying when we get above 1.5 degrees, we are going to be in serious trouble, and we're only three tenths of a degree away from that right now, um, and it, it could have cataclysmic consequences. You see, it's about if we devalue the earth and devalue the animal kingdom—that's out of line with God's will. That's called sin, and it will ricochet back on us. And maybe that's some of the stuff we're seeing right now. In the last couple of years, it's, uh, weather. Patterns that are unprecedented and storms that are unprecedented. We see what happened to Yellowstone. Uh, this kind of stuff is going to be going on and on and that could be the ricochet effect of the sin of devaluing the earth. Not taking not care, care, care of God's property and not, not uh, taking care of God's pets. Uh, you know, I, I can't fix the world and I can't save the world and I can't fix humanity and neither can you. But as kingdom people, we are called to be faithful. Even if no one else is, amen, we are called to be faithful. And so I, I, I would call on us, and this is maybe more important than, than, than you're inclined to think, but, but I call on all of us to uh, look at our lifestyle and look at our food choices and ask the question, how does this impact the planet and how does this impact the animal kingdom? Uh, you, you, you Know where your food comes from. Know where the animal had to go through to get on your plate if you're a meat eater. And you don't want to be supporting an establishment that treats them cruelly, because that makes you complicit with it. Uh, no, get, get free-range uh, meat, where animals can live a natural life before they're, they're slaughtered for food. Um, they don't have to go through the misery they're going through. I, I encourage us, you know, look at reducing the amount of plastics that you can use, and, and educate yourself on stuff. There's a lot of information out there, if you'll take the time just to kind of look into it. You might start with, there's a documentary called From, uh, uh, From Farm to Fridge. That's a good place to start, about the animal cruelty stuff. On the, on the ecological stuff, you might start with the, the story of plastics. And just know kind of what's going on and, make, and revise. Be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the planet and say, for the sake of the animal kingdom, because that's what kingdom people are supposed to do. Uh, we want to be carrying out all the job descriptions that God gives to us as kingdom people, and that includes our original one of caring for the earth and the animal kingdom. Okay, getting back to Matthew 7. So what Jesus does is he takes this ricochet principle and he applies it to judgment. Just as the violence that the king of Assyria afflicted on Lebanon will come back on him, so also the judgments that we make will come back on us. The measure you give is the measure you're going to get. So if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. It ricochets back on us individually and collectively. Okay, that's Matthew 7. Second passage I want to deal with. Where does my handkerchief go, Mary? Did you give me... I thought. You, oh, yeah. Man, it's a scorcher today. But, you know, be glad you're not in Texas. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, and I, 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 we love Texans. We love you guys. But you guys are... Man, I, I, I could not live south of Mason-Dixon line. 97. It's supposed to hit 97 today, and that's about as much as I can take. So when you see me sweating like a pig up here, we'll just say that's the anointing. Greg's really anointed today. Hallelujah. Glory. Okay. Okay. Uh, Genesis, Genesis 50 is a story about Joseph. Um, actually, 47 to 50 is the story of Joseph. And, and if you don't know the story, I encourage you to go and read it. But what you need to know for today is just this little background. So Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Uh, he was the youngest of the 12 sons, and the other 11 were quite scoundrels. Uh, and, and, and Joseph was the favorite, uh, Jacob's favorite because um, he can interpret dreams and all sorts of other things. And at one point, Jacob gave him this multicolored coat that was really beautiful, and his brothers got really jealous, so jealous that they sold him into slavery. And then they lied to Jacob, their dad, saying, oh, he got killed by a wild beast. And so Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, but he can interpret dreams. He's got an ability to just understand dreams, and, 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 and that gift moves him from being a slave in Egypt to becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man fairly quickly. He had to go through a couple of episodes, Potiphar's wife and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he, he finally becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man because he could interpret Pharaoh's dream and, 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 and uh, gave him wisdom on how to handle a coming famine. Well, this famine happened, and it, it devastated Canaan. And so the uh, Jacob's sons had to migrate to Egypt where they had stored up food because they were preparing for the famine thanks to Joseph's dream interpretation. So they go down there, and the request for food leads them into the court of Pharaoh's right-hand man, who's doing all the food management. And that's where the brothers eventually come to realize, whoa, that's, our, that's the bud we sold into slavery. And they're assuming that they're toast. Because this guy has all the authority you could have uh, in Egypt, and he can do anything he wants with these brothers. And if he's looking out for vengeance, well, they might find themselves flayed alive. So then we read this. He says, then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, we are here as your slaves. They're begging for their life here, making slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear, I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. I love Joseph. He he could have exact vengeance, all he wanted here. He had all the power, but instead, first he points out, he sees the hand of God in this. He goes, I know you you intended it for evil, but see, God intended it for good. Uh, God has a good plan on how to use your evil plan to further his good purposes. That's how smart God is. Don't you love that fact that God can do that? God's smart enough to use your evil plan for his good plan, and that's what he does. Beautiful. And then he says, and don't be afraid. Am I standing in the place of God? And what he's saying there is that only God can judge. I, 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 I'm not God, so I, I'm not going to judge you here. In fact, I'm, I'm going to take care of you and, and, and watch over you. Uh, you, you. Which means when we are judging, we are playing God. Which shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what the serpent said would happen when we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from the street, eat, because then you'll be wise. You'll be knowing good and evil, just like God. In fact, when we, when we judge others, we're, we're not really playing God, but we're judging God. Because we're saying, God, you're not a competent judge. We're not going to trust you to, to judge people rightly. No, we, we, we take matters into our own hands. James says something very similar, and this is the third passage we're going to look at. He says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Listen up if you're one who is inclined to gossip and speak evil about others. Uh, you're, You're speaking evil against the law. You're judging it. You're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. And then he says, There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So then, who are you to judge your neighbor? There's one Judge in this universe, and so who are you when you're judging another? You're acting like you are the judge of the universe. You're playing God. And you're judging God because you're saying that he's not competent, and you're judging the law because you're saying it's not competent. Uh, To really understand what James is getting at here, you got to look at something he wrote a little earlier in chapter 2. He says this, You do well if you really fulfill the royal law. According to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it here the royal law. It's the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. Because as Jesus taught and as the Apostle Paul taught, um, when you are loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the entire law. That's the fulfilling of the entire law. And so to live in love, as we're called to do, is to be fulfilling the law, the law that we're supposed to be loving. But we're not doing that if we're judging you can't both be ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself while you're also stealing worth from others, to, to uh, 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 stealing worth for yourself at cost to them. Love and judgment are antithetical. And so if we're not, if we're judging rather than loving, well, then we're not a doer of the law, the royal law. Uh, no, we're just a judge of it. I and mean, we're a judge of God. His point is, live in love and let God do all the judging, which is what Paul says, and this brings me to my final passage, Romans 12, it says this. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. When we try to avenge ourselves, we're not leaving any room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemies are hungry, feed them, and if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will be ill, heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, help us to hear this message here. It's part of our fallen nature that when we're wronged, we have an inclination an inclination to get even. Get evenism. You hurt me, so I want to hurt you. I want to make you pay. You hurt my loved ones? I want you to feel what that's like. And there's this vengeance is mine, says Greg Boyd, kind of attitude that we can acquire. It's part of the fallen nature. Take justice into our own hands. If we're followers of Jesus, that instinct to retaliate has got to be crucified. It's got to be crucified. And we are called to leave all payback impulses to God. Let all get evenism leave that with God. Of course, in society, we've got to carry out justice and all of that. But I'm talking about in our personal lives. We have to release all that, crucify that get even impulse that you have within you. When we judge others, we're not leaving room for for, for God's justice, for God's wrath. We're we're rather taking up all the space ourselves. And as I said, we're we're playing God. And therefore, we're judging God. God's not competent to judge. We have to take matters into our own hands. So Paul says, instead of of exacting vengeance, instead of trying to retaliate, instead of trying to to, to get even, do the opposite. Do the exact opposite. So that enemy who's been after you, who's been criticizing you, who's maybe been trying to kill you, whatever, that enemy, don't respond in kind, tit for tat, quid pro quo. No, it's rather, you give them, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't mirror what they're doing. That's our instinct. Someone comes at you big and strong, you want to get big and strong. They put their hand back, you want to put your hand back. Oh, yeah? We, we, We match them. Their voice gets louder, so our voice gets louder. And it it just escalates and escalates. Paul says, do the opposite. They come in big, go small. They come in loud, say gentle. They come in cruel, be nice. Smother them with their kindness. And he says, in doing that, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Now, that was a a Hebraic uh, idiom for saying you bring conviction on somebody. If I respond big when someone comes at me big... I just justify in their mind they're coming at me big. They feel now justified being big. But if I go small and I don't respond in kind, and I respond to their cruelty with kindness and, and, and their loudness with gentleness, well, what's, what happens is it exposes the wrongfulness of what they're doing. And it opens up the possibility that they might see the error of their ways. It opens up the possibility that they might repent of what they're doing It opens up the possibility that they might want to be reconciled with you. The power of love is the only power in the universe that can transform an enemy into a friend. If only we will put it into practice. The most powerful force in the universe. Amen. The most powerful force in the universe. Think about it. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can do that. Um, That's why Paul says that the cross is the power of God. To the world it's weakness, but to us it's the, the power of God. When God shows forth his omnipotent power, it looks like him getting crucified for this race of lost people out of love for us. Uh, you, you, and they say, and this is what it means to overcome evil with good. If, if they come in big and you get big, and they come in loud, you get loud, they come in violent and you just respond with violence, well, now see, you're allowing evil to define you. Uh, they, at that moment, your opponent is defining you. They're dictating what you're thinking, what you're, how you're acting, what you're feeling. See, as kingdom people, we're supposed to be defined by God and nothing else. And so, when I can stay in a love zone and respond in a Christ like way and in a gentle way, when I, when I do the opposite of what they're doing to me, well, see, now I'm being defined by God. And I'm introducing the kingdom into this, 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 this moment. Uh, and this is good overcoming evil. And I, so, now that God can, has a chance to work in this person's heart and free them from the, the hatred that they have in their heart, and it turned us into a kingdom moment. You don't want to be defined by the person who's coming against you, but when we respond in kind, we are giving them authority to define us. And that, King people, is something we should never, ever do. I encourage you, when someone is criticizing you, when they're attacking you, when you're feeling like they're coming after you, whatever the, whatever the quote-unquote enemy might be, remind yourself to do the opposite. A person gossiping about you, well, don't gossip about them. That just justifies them gossiping about you. But rather, bring them a cake. Remember the birthday. Uh, you know, open the door for them. Give them a compliment. Spread good rumors about them. Just do the opposite. This is, the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and it changes the world when we keep it in an upside-down way. Amen? Amen. Don't follow the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember the Christ-likeness that we bring into all, all situations. And I'll tell you, as I mentioned earlier with this person who testified, it, it is so freeing. Um, I've had a, a number of times where people have Criticized me and, and to my face and said nasty things to me. And I felt myself starting to get jacked up and, and get that little flutter going on, on the inside, especially if it's done in public. And you know, yeah, I gotta worry about how, what people are thinking or whatever. But if I can, when I stay in that zone and just just respond with kindness and keep on smiling at them, and, and it, it, there's something, liber- it, it, it's so liberating, it's, it's freeing. It's like, uh, I, I, I'm not in bondage to what this person is bringing to me. There's a freedom that goes there, and it's even a joy that can happen. And uh, I can't say that I've had many theological opponents of mine convert on the spot. Uh, but 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 you know, but it's sowing seeds. It's planting seeds, and. Um, uh, it just feels great. I encourage us to be living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And to do that, we've got to collapse all of those judgments. Assessing, discerning, yes. We need to do it. We need people to do it for us. Judging, looking down on others, never. We're never allowed to look down. We're only allowed to look up. Because we're to confess that we are, each of us, the worst of sinners. As, as Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 1. I'll end the message with the same way I began it because I'm not afraid of repeating myself anymore. I'm not afraid of repeating myself anymore. I'm not afraid of repeating myself anymore. (laughs) Repeat, repeat, repeat. Gap. As they send us out, I encourage us, spend some time with Jesus this week. However that works for you. Uh, where you just let him love on you and you drink deeply from that well of his love because that's the fuel that the kingdom runs on. We're to be compelled by the love of God, not oughts or shoulds or gotta do's, whatever. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Get all your life from God, gee. Agree with God that every person you see and every person you come in contact with, every person that you even think about has unsurpassable worth. And, and, and throughout the day, just bless people. Uh, random, just, oh God, I agree with you for that person it has unsurpassable worth. Bless them, have them have a good day or whatever. Uh, Love is a verb, and if we're to be living in love, there's a verb that we should be doing all the time that other people aren't doing. And I pretty much can guarantee you that there's not a lot of people out there who are secretly loving on folks. We're to be like kingdom spies where we're just like spreading good, good blessings everywhere we go. Be a blessing machine, just be blessing people, agreeing with God all over the place. And that is so freeing and so liberating because you never realize how much of a burden it is to be the judge of the universe until you stop doing it. And whoa, it's freeing. Give yourself permission to love outrageously everybody and you don't need to be the police of anybody except those who have asked you to do that and you'll find it's just so liberating. And then the P, every day I encourage us to pick the three, five people who are the hardest to love, the ones who just greet you wrong and, and, and pray for them. Agree with God about their unsurpassable worth and, and and pray blessings over them. Doesn't mean that you're praying that their views will be spread or anything like that. Maybe you may all pray against that, maybe, but but for them, you pray because they, whatever their views are, whatever it is that you hate about them, they're human beings made in the image of God, and Jesus died for them. And your job, Simon 101, is to agree with God about that. He's Lord, he gets to say how we think, and that's that's what he tells that's how he tells us how to think, how to behave, how to live. Gap. In Jesus' name, let's go out and do gap. Uh, I want you to say that if you're here this morning, or not here, we have prayer available uh, for you. If you're watching online, you can get online and re- talk to our prayer folks uh, that way, or we have some folks up here at the front of the auditorium who would love to pray for you. Uh, don't carry that burden out alone. I encourage you to come forward and get prayer for that. Um, we have the MuseCast at 4 o'clock on Tuesdays where they go a little deeper with the message. I encourage you to check that out. We've got gathering groups that are just wonderful. A lot of great things are happening there. I encourage you to get on there. You can talk to folks about the message and, and other things, folks from all over the states and in some cases all over the world. And if you are going to be here next week in-house and you have kiddos that you'll be bringing, let us know ahead of time uh, so we can have, make sure we have enough uh, workers back there to care for the kids. Father, thank you for your outrageous love. Thank you, Lord, that you are working in all things to, 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 for the better. However ugly, however messy, however putrid, you're involved in it to bring good and kingdom out out of it. Uh, and we just thank you for that. Thank you for being a light in a world that is sometimes so very dark, as Dan said. And thank you, Lord, for empowering us to be a people who live with outrageous love towards all people at all times in all situations. No if and buts or exception clauses. Help us to do that. Remind us, Holy Spirit, to be practicing the gap. Throughout this week, in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live on the world.